Welcome to the Five By, the most quarter-weekly, most rapid-fire, most fivest board game review podcast. In this episode, Jose plays Let's Summon Demons, Aaron rolls and writes with Splitter, new contributor Justin introduces himself, and I wonder why the F did they keep this? But first, Ruel reviews Splendor Duel. Mediterranean royalty are looking for the most beautiful adornments in the land. As a merchant of such fine wares, you have the opportunity of a lifetime, but you have an ambitious rival. Can you outwit them in this race for fortune and prestige? Hi friends, this is Ruel Gaviola. Let's take a look at Splendor Duel by Marc-Andre and Bruno Cathala, with art by David Tosello. Splendor Duel was published in 2022 by Space Cowboys, who sent me a copy for a paid preview on the Rattle Runs Through YouTube channel. In Splendor Duel, you and your opponent will take gem or pearl tokens from the board and try to exchange them for higher valued jewel cards. These jewel cards will reward you with prestige points, crowns, and or one-time abilities. Before your turn, you may spend a privilege token to gain one non-gold token, or you may replenish the board with gem tokens. On your turn, perform one of three actions. Take up to three gem tokens from the board, take one gold gem token and reserve a jewel card, or purchase a jewel card. Purchasing a jewel card requires gem tokens or previously purchased jewel cards to pay the cost. The game ends immediately when a player has 20 prestige points total, 10 prestige points and one color of jewel cards, or 10 total crowns. After taking Antoine Biles' Seven Wonders and transforming it into a better game for two players, Bruno Cathala has worked his magic again with Marc-Andre's Splendor. Everything you enjoyed in Splendor is still here, the light engine building, the straightforward turns and gameplay, and the colorful gems. But now, you have three different win conditions instead of one, and there's a nice spatial element to selecting the gems you want. My wife Michelle and I love the original Splendor, and I've always preferred it as a two-player game. It's easy to set up, and you can get through a game in about 20 minutes. It's the perfect game to unwind with at the end of the day. Splendor Duel adds layers of strategy while retaining the sleek design of the original and without increasing the playtime. I love the way you take gems here. Instead of being able to take the gem tokens you want most of the time, here you have a randomized board of tokens to choose from. You can take up to three in a row, but they can't include a wild gold token. But if they're all the same color, then your opponent gets a privilege token. There are only three privilege tokens in the game, and you can't hoard them. If there are none in the supply, then your opponent takes one of yours. These privilege tokens can be lifesavers, since they allow you to take one non-gold token before you select up to three on your normal turn. There's also the addition of one new resource, the Pearl. Since there are only two Pearl tokens available in the game, and many of the jewel cards require one Pearl, you and your opponent will be constantly battling over them. Splendor Duel offers a simple turn structure, but increases the tension with its three different win conditions. It's still a race to prestige points, 20 now, up from 15, but you can also win by having 10 prestige in one color, or by gathering 10 crowns throughout all of your jewel cards. The win conditions are simple additions and work perfectly without increasing the complexity of the rules. It's still a race to certain numbers, but juggling the different items, overall points, crown points, or points in one color gem, often leads to gut-wrenching decisions. Do you try to buy jewel cards that have crowns on them? Or do you focus on cards with bonus actions? Or will you try to earn enough crowns to get one of the royals, which offer 4 points or 3 points in an action? Or do you focus on one color gem for points, thus limiting your purchase power for other gems? I love all of these different choices in Splendor Duel, 
Yet the gameplay is so similar to the original that players can easily grasp the rules within the first few turns. Best of all, you now have special one-time abilities on some cards, which allow for some fun multi-action turns. These include taking a privilege token, taking a token from the board, copying the color of a previously earned card, or taking another entire turn. There's even a little bit of take that, with a take a non-gold token from your opponent. My one strike against Splinter Duel is the art for the gems. In later editions of the base game, the red and green gems were represented by distinctive art. The ruby was more square, while the green was more rectangular. Unfortunately, Splinter Duel features red and green gems that are similar in shade and shape, thus making it difficult for a player like me and anyone with vision issues. Couple that with the fact that the entire game has been shrunk down in size, I had trouble distinguishing between the two colors. The components, from the poker-style chips to jewel cards, are all smaller. And due to the size of the cards, ticket to ride size compared to the original standard size cards, vision accessibility was always going to be a challenge. And, to paraphrase the knight in Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, Splendor Duel's graphic design team chose poorly. Still, even with this issue, Splendor Duel quickly became one of my favorite two-player games of all time. It's a brilliantly conceived design that I highly recommend for fans of Splendor or two-player games in general. Thanks to Space Cowboys for the copy of Splendor Duel. This has been Ruel Gaviola for the 5x. Thanks for listening. Find me on Twitter and Twitch at Ruel Gaviola. That's R-U-E-L-G-A-V-I-O-L-A. Let's take another quick trip down Nostalgia Lane. Let's remember our time as young kids, making friends with other kids on the block, playing with your pet dog or your pet cat or walking your fish. Or those special days where you got to get together with all your friends in order to help summon Porcus, the horrifying pig demon, or the Krampus for the holidays. <laughs> those were great times, weren't they? Were, were they? Anyway, today I'm going to be taking a look at Let's Summon Demons, designed by Ben Stoll and artwork by Stephen Rhodes, published by Dynamite Games. Let's Summon Demons is a quick tableau building game for two to five summoners. Everyone's going to start the game with a starting candle and a random hand of three very powerful demons. There's going to be a market of cards in the center of the table, made up of kids and maybe new pets. Uh, that you can use soul tokens on your turn to recruit onto your mm, team. The first person to summon all three of their demons is going to win the game. At the start of a turn, someone's going to roll 2d6, and you add those two numbers together. If that number is in anyone's tableau, they get to activate the card that corresponds with that number. Hopefully this is going to give you more soul tokens that you can use to recruit others to your team but sometimes they will give you some other abilities depending on what cards you have. On your turn, you can also recruit kids on to your team, or you can also discard three cards from your team in order to summon one of your demons. I mean, I'm sure they just had to go home. It's getting late. Once you do that three times and have a balance of ten souls in the bank, you win the game. This <laughs> this game is one of th three games in a trilogy, and as of recording this, another set of three games is set to come out in the coming year. And I know that inspiration for board games can come from pretty much anywhere. That's one of the first things that I like about this hobby is 
the breadth of experiences, but this is the first time I can think of where a game has come from a t-shirt design. I'm familiar with Stephen Rhodes, the Stephen Rhodes name from his artwork. Um, you'll probably have seen some of his artwork. It kind of looks like old activity or kids coloring books, but the kids, instead of playing at the park, they might be abducted by aliens or playing with uh, big feats. A lot of these kids are put into very weird situations, as if you haven't been able to tell already from the theme of the game. Which leads me to my first point. The theme. Now, I totally understand if people are turned off by this theme and they don't want to touch it because of it, and I don't begrudge anyone for feeling that way. I get it. But this game has its tongue planted firmly in its cheek. There's nothing in this game I feel like is too serious. The demons are all a mixture of puns and old 80s D&D style monsters. The kids in the game are all references to movie characters, uh, celebrities, and uh, just other well-known even sayings. And my first playthrough of the game was just full of people throwing quotes at as we try to figure out who some of these characters are. The game can also be set up and explained in a matter of minutes. Setup takes maybe a minute where you just hand out a hand of cards and shuffle a deck. The game is over in about half an hour, and if I had to compare the game to anything else, it would be like a very streamlined Machi Koro. I enjoyed playing the game at three to four players. I, I do like a little bit of chaos, so four players is fun for me. But the take-that nature of the game can cause uh, the two-player game to maybe last a little bit longer than I would like, especially if you're just going tit-for-tat with the powers that are available to you. The components are pretty good for the price. The cards are actually kind of cool. They're not regular cards, but they're big circles. And they might not be the best quality, but they don't feel cheap, and they don't feel like they're going to break down after a handful of games. I'll be honest with you, this game doesn't blow my feet out of the water, but it's not a terrible way to spend 20 bucks and some time between games. It's a good filler game with some kitschy art, and it's probably going to stay in my collection for a while. Now, I hear you asking, you mentioned a trilogy, what about the other games? Well, first off, I'm right here, you don't have to yell. And number B, you're just going to have to wait for my next review for the other games in the series. My name is Jose. And you can find me on Instagram at SirBearsworth, and on Twitter at SirBearsworth1, the number one. I, I know, some, someone beat me. So stop on by and let me know what you've been playing, and I promise I won't be getting rid of you. Hey, it's Aaron from GameEnthus.com here on the 5 by and hope that anyone listening had happy holidays and uh, is continuing to have a happy new year. So the game I'm going to be talking about today is one that has really no theme at all. I know for some that would result in an immediate about face. So the game I'm going to talk about today is called Splitter. Two halves make a whole. Splitter is a roll and write, and roll and writes or verb and writes, including flip and writes, things like that. Verb and write games are probably my one of my favorite mechanics. Splitter is being published in the US by Pandasaurus Games and was designed by Stefan Nikolic or Nikolic. Splitter is playable from 1 to 12 players for ages 8 and up, and the duration 
on the rules in the box, say about 15 minutes. Splitter comes with two pads for two different sheets. There's sheet A and sheet B. Both of the sheets are relatively small. This is a pocket size game, the size of a simple card game. On the left side of the pad, there are the numbers one through six going down vertically. And then there's a space for a score for each one of those six spaces. Underneath that, there's a larger space for your final score. Let's say that sheet A is shaped like a pixelized ball. There's some jagged edges around four sides. There's also two stars on either side. And then there's a line going right down the center. The shapes of both of the layouts on sheet A and B are both symmetrical, which is key to this game. It's all about symmetry. And the game comes with four pencils with erasers of a expected, aka middling quality. I'll talk more about A and talk about some of the exceptions for sheet B. There's two dice that come in the box and on any player's turn, doesn't matter. Doesn't matter who rolls because everything, everybody plays simultaneously. Those two dice are rolled. And whatever comes up has to be placed symmetrically, meaning it's two and one come up, then you have to place two on one side of the dotted line and one on the other side. But you have to place them symmetrically. If you place the two, two spaces to the left of center, that means that the one has to be two spaces to the right of center. Every round, essentially, somebody rolls and then every player writes down those two numbers symmetrically on their sheet. And the real goal is the actual, what the numbers are. You want one to be by itself. You don't want one touching any other ones. It's worth one point. You want a set of two to just be touching each other, but no other twos, because if you had three twos, it's no longer two twos. And if you do that by the end of the game, you would get two points. Three works the same way. You want a group of three connected orthogonally, and the same can be said, uh, orthogonally adjacent, and the same could be said for fours, fives, and even sixes. And that's where the challenge comes in. So you want to keep the number in that number on its respective side and no more. And what's interesting is, let's say you have a bunch of sixes together and you happen to just write a seventh six that connects orthogonally adjacent to that grouping. Well, that's no longer worth anything because you have seven sixes that are connected orthogonally where you just want six. And that really is the game. And I know it sounds like that, that's easy. It's, it's, it's not because you're going to be filling these sheets in every single box in the sheet. And it gets tough because you're, you're really trying to adhere to those placement rules. You only want four fours touching orthogonally. And that, that gets rough. The game works exactly the same way, whether you're playing solo or you're playing with others. At the end of the game, you would score how many ones you had by themselves how many groupings of two you had by themselves, threes, fours, fives, sixes, and you'd add all that up, and that is your score. I mentioned the game works very similarly between solo and multiplayer. Multiplayer, whoever has the most points wins, and for the solo game, there is a chart in the rules that tells you exactly where you rank, and you are trying to ultimately beat your, your previous best score. I believe I scored 31 my first game, and I think 31 through 33 points is considered only okay. And 51 or higher is described as otherworldly in the rules. I mentioned some blocks that had stars in them that those appear on sheet A and sheet B. If one of your formations happens to be written on one of those star spaces, you would double the value of that formation. So you really want to get something like a five or a six. Anything is good, but get something like a five or a six 
formation using having one of those numbers being on that one of those stars is really beneficial because you double your double the score for the formation. That's that's great. Ultimately, the lack of theming in Splitter is not a detractor for me at all, but I know for some it might be. I think it's a fun game. It's quick. It's really easy to teach. Very fun, lightweight filler roll and write from Pandasaurus and designed by Stefan Nikolic. Anyway, that's going to do it for me. I'm Aaron from GameEnthuse.com, contributor to the 5 by. You want to see what I'm up to, you can follow me on Twitter at Indifference. The second I is a one or at GameEnthuse. I run both of those accounts. You can also check out Game Enthuse on YouTube. Thank you for listening. Take care. Stay safe. And be blessed. Ho, 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 ho. It is great to be here. My name is Justin Bell, and I'm a new contributor to the 5 by podcast. I'm excited. Hopefully, you'll be as excited as I am to talk through and think about some of the games that I've had the chance to play most recently. I thought that before I dove into reviewing new games for the 5 by it would be important to do my first segment about what I like most about board games and what maybe things don't work as well for me when I think about the games I'm going to review. So some things that I like. I really love games that are under two hours. I'm a parent and time is a bit limited, particularly during the daytime. So Games that can finish up quickly are really important to me. I also really enjoy games that have low downtime. I like taking turns. So having to wait for three or four other players to take 10 to 15 minutes between my next turn, not a fan. So finding experiences that allow me to take as many turns as possible and to make meaningful and interesting choices is really important to me as well. I really love a good mid-weight Euro. Games like Grand Austria Hotel, Korra, Rise of an Empire. Uh, I've got a lot of games like that on my shelf. I really enjoy those efficiency engine types of games. Lorenzo, Il Magnifico, and others like it. I also enjoy economic games. I have a lot of those kind of games on my shelf. Games like Stockpile, Brick and Mortar, City of the Big Shoulders, Magnate the first city, all of those kinds of things that allow me to break out my Iron Clay's 400 poker chip set, count me in. I do play a lot of party games. I used to play games like Wavelength and and Just One before the pandemic. Those have become harder to get to the table, but I think I'm seeing some glimmers of hope when it comes to getting back to doing more of those six, eight, ten-person party games at my house. I also enjoy a good direct combat game, maybe a 4X game like Scythe. Those kinds of experiences I'm really getting into more. I'm really excited for the game Voidfall from Mind Clash Games coming this summer. There's also a few things that I think of as being a bit silly, but I really enjoy as well. Things like deluxe components. If there's any chance that I can play an Eagle Griffin Games production like Rococo Deluxe, Vinos Deluxe Edition, Kanban EV, just opening the box, setting those kinds of games up, it's a ton of fun for me. I also like game trays. If the storage solution and putting things away is as much fun as playing the game, I'm usually someone that can be tricked into playing those kinds of games and certainly buying those kinds of games. Easy to do. There's a few things that I don't like. Rules for the sake of rules. 
games. I don't really know what they want to be. I had a recent experience with a game called Deal with the Devil from Czech Games Edition. I think I struggled with an identity crisis. Those kinds of games are trickier. Games that overstay their welcome and campaign games where trying to do 15 or 20 episodes of a campaign or scenarios over the course of many months. With my current job and family situation, that can be really difficult to maintain. I think it's important also for you to know some of my favorite games from 2022. Games like Carnegie, Tylatum, Circadian's Chaos Order, Imperial Steam, Cryo, Crescent Moon, Dinosaur Island, Roll and Write, or maybe it's Rawr and Write, Findorf, and a party game called Gimme That from the people that gave us Taco Cat Goat Cheese Pizza. All of those were incredible experiences from my time playing games in 2022. So that's a bit about me. I'm excited to be a part of the 5 by podcast. You can find out more about me either on Instagram or Twitter at Justin Bell Says or on the website that I write for, Meeple Mountain, www.meeplemountain.com. I'm excited to be here. Happy New Year. And I'm looking forward to contributing more content in the months ahead. I think that as human beings, we crave meaning and pattern, and we try to create it wherever we can, even in a collection of random objects. I thought about this a lot while playing Why the F Did They Keep This, a solo RPG by Travis Hill, about sifting through the belongings of someone who has recently died. The game is small, just 18 cards, and you provide a D6 and something to write on. I have a special RPG notebook that I use for games like this, but a pencil and paper works just as well, or even a notepad file on your computer. The rules are just as streamlined as the components. You draw a card, each card has the name of an object like stacks of books or knickknacks, then you roll a die to see how many of today's object you'll be sorting through. Then roll again to choose descriptors from a table on the back of each card. Are the books clownish, old-fashioned, or shabby? Now write about the objects, whatever you want to say, as long as you use the descriptors. Then roll once more to see whether you'll keep, discard, or sell that object. That's it. You can review as many or as few cards as you want. You don't have to play through all 18. The rules suggest 5 or 6. One detail I love is that the rules tell you to draw as many cards as you want to play, plus 1. I think the intent of this is to be viewing an object and a table of descriptors at the same time. But what I love about it is the implication that you never fully complete this task. You can't sort through all someone's possessions, put a bow on it, and then be done. People are complex. There's always something more there. Why the F Did They Keep This was released in 2022 by Press Pot Games and is available for download from their Itch.io page for just $5. I backed the Kickstarter for a physical copy of the game and had been looking forward to playing for a long time. But I put it off because I did a major renovation of my home last year, which involved going through and culling many of our possessions. Books, games, clothes, craft supplies, furniture. Not everything we own went through this process, but most of it did. Because of just having gone through this, I was drawn to why the F did they keep this, but the premise hit a little close to home, both figuratively and literally. 
and I had to wait until I had a little distance before I could handle playing the game. I also confess I changed the premise a bit to dial back the emotional intensity. Instead of a loved one who recently died, I played that I was sorting through and cleaning out the office of someone who had retired and left all their stuff behind. I work for a company where turnover is very low, and it's not at all unusual to see an office that someone has spent decades collecting stuff in, building a little home away from home for themselves. This changed the experience of why the F did they keep this a little, but not actually as much as I was expecting. The object cards worked perfectly in the office pack rat setting. The only card I had to think about how to fit in was vinyl records, which I decided the retiree had framed classic album covers and hung them on the wall. Every other card had an object that I have seen people collect in their offices, so it felt completely realistic. The biggest adjustment was that the premise I'd created, with the owner of these objects still alive, meant that I had to ask myself two questions. Why the F did they keep this, and why the F did they leave it behind? I ended up deciding that the retiree had moved into a camper so they could road trip around North America, and they had downsized their home and all its contents and just didn't have the energy to do the same with their office. This made for a pretty lighthearted version of why the F did they keep this. There wasn't the sense of loss that I think is supposed to be intrinsic to the game. I thought the heaviest emotion would be mild resentment at having to clean up the retiree's office while they were off having fun. But even though my playthrough wasn't about a death, it was about an ending, and that did evoke some complex feelings I wasn't expecting. If you've ever looked at an antique ledger book from a family or small business in the past, I'm sure you've done what I always do, which is look at the items in the ledger and try to imagine what were they for, why did this list exist, and what were the human stories behind it. Even if I never find out the historical reality of that ledger, that's okay. I'm not a historian. I'm using that list of items to paint a mental picture of a person, a life, that may or may not have any connection to an actual person, but feels real to me. That's what's so interesting about why the F did they keep this. It invites you to explore a literally random collection of objects and use them to create patterns and meaning and paint a mental picture of a life. And that's why the F did they keep this. A solo RPG, a creative writing prompt, a thoughtful little game about what people leave behind and how their belongings affect those who remain. My name is Sarah. Look me up on Twitter or Instagram, at Sarah Ovenall, or on Mastodon, at Ovenall, at Dice.cam. Especially if you know of other interesting solo RPGs, then I really want to hear from you. You've been listening to The 5 By, your monthly source for board game reviews. Follow us on Twitter at 5 By Games. Like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash 5 By Games. Join our BGG Guild number 2810. Listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And check out our website at 5bygames.com. If you like what we do here or want to support our work, visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash 5 By Games. Thanks for listening. For more shows like this, check out the Goonhammer Media Network. More info at media.goonhammer.com.